This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Today's episode, number 1632, is Michael Judd's keynote speech from the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence, recorded live at that event. In what follows, Michael shares with us more of his story, some of which we heard in his first interviews with the show, about how he lived and worked in South America, met one of the indigenous peoples there, and helped them overcome some of their own issues by approaching them from a space of service. Along the way, he discovered permaculture, created Project Bonafide, started his own permaculture landscaping and consulting business, Ecologia Design, and became the author that we probably know him best as of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. With this, he also gives us an update of where things are, including his upcoming Paw Paw Festival that'll be held outside of Frederick, Maryland, in a few weeks, on Saturday, September 17th. You'll find more links and information to that in the show notes. Michael also rounds out this conversation by opening the floor to participants that day and asking them for their own questions. So if you're interested in growing hazelnuts, or you have, or if you have soil that's clay-heavy and has a low pH, stick around. You'll hear some suggestions for what you can do with that land. As we begin, I'd like to thank the sponsors who made the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence and this recording possible. Crossfields Institute, Sustainable Jefferson County, and Goddard College. Several advertisers also added to the success of this day, including Pip Magazine out of Australia, Susquehanna Permaculture, Seppi's Place, and Permaculture Design Magazine. Personally, I'd also like to thank Emma Huvos from the bottom of my heart, for being the co-creator of this event and opening her farm, the Riverside Project, to all of us that day so that we could network and learn from one another. Now then, on to Michael, and I'll join you again afterwards. Thank you all for including me in this. Thanks for having it. Thanks for putting it on. Thanks for coming. Um, this this, to me, is what creates the essence of permaculture. I am going to share my permaculture story. I think it's pretty unique, and it touches on some of the characters in permaculture, some of the history of permaculture, which I've been a part of for about 20 years now. I've been fortunate to travel in a lot of different places, met a lot of types of permaculturists, a lot of characters, seen the movement, use permaculture in different ways, keep uh, designing with permaculture, design my life, the things I do. Um, I'm hoping through my story, maybe you'll have more understanding of some of the potentials and um, things to do and maybe some things not to do with, uh, with permaculture. Uh, so I'm originally from this area, Appalachia, just uh, north of Frederick. About half an hour. Fred County in here. Um, so I grew up mostly there in southern rural England, but at the age of 20, 22 years ago, I got an opportunity to go live in Latin America, South America, in Argentina. And through that experience of being there, really through the experience of seeing poverty, extreme poverty seeing hunger, seeing you know, children playing in sewage, swollen bellies, cities of hovels, things I've never encountered 
20 and I've never seen her you know, really absorb what that meant or what it looked like. And it shocked me, it upset me, it confused me, and it began the journey that led me to being here today, shaped my life. I think that's probably been, you know, sort of the impetus that's um, created the experiences that's led me to using and working with permature in the community, using as a tool. Uh, my drive has been to change the circumstances, see, you know, change the situations that upset me, things I've seen. Uh, I've dedicated my life at that point to trying to improve conditions for people and the environment, which to me have become interchangeable. And so after living in South America, about three years later, I found myself picking coffee in Costa Rica, picking the coffee harvest. And I was picking the coffee harvest with Nicaraguan families. Most of the Costa Ricans don't pick coffee anymore. It's kind of like us bringing up Latinos and Mexicans to work in Costa Rica. They bring the Nicaraguans and others in to do the agricultural work. So it was me and Nicaraguan families out there on the hillsides. And I was just amazed at their strength, physical strength, but their family strength. I mean, there was like nine-year-old girls out there out picking me, and grandmothers, like the whole family was out there, and they were working as a unit. And that's when I first fell in love with Nicaragua and Nicaraguans, and subsequently traveled from there up through Nicaragua, Mexico City, and got to experience Nicaragua as a land this was, this was 18 years ago. There wasn't much of a gringo trail back then, so it was quite an adventure. And you really, I really got to talk to the people, experience, see the conditions, but also really sense their strength as a culture, and a culture that's still related to growing their own food, subsistence growing, growing from all their own needs and their sense of community and the sense that they work together to make that happen really stayed with me even after I left Nicaragua. And the years before coming back to Nicaragua, which I'll get to, always felt that draw to return. But the years to follow, I ended up in southern Mexico in Chiapas, which is the southern state of Mexico that, that touches on Guatemala. And there I was fortunate enough to work with the cultural association that was working with mostly the Highland Mayan tribes. But during my time in the Highlands, I saw a Lacandon Mayan. And these, the Lacandon Mayan are the last of the Mayans who escaped conquistadores. They escaped Christianity. And they, the way they did that was they buried themselves in the deepest part of the jungle, the Lacandon jungle, where no one was going in. Uh, pretty wild in there. And that's how they've survived. I think a little over 100 years ago, there was only 100 of them left. Now there's probably 500. Um, and they have they've have about three communities in the heart of that jungle. And that condition is, you know, that jungle's been disappearing like all jungles. Um, deforestation, uh, the army, that's where the last the Zapatistas were hiding. A lot of the Lacandon Mayas were also Zapatistas. Some of, the, some of the rebel army that was in that area, you guys remember. 15 years ago, the uprisings in San Cristobal de las Casas and those areas. So they were entrenched in there and, and they stayed in there and they, they kept their culture 
and they kept intact because they didn't interact very much with the outside. But one of their young men had left because what, had ha what was happening was, yeah, the, the jungle was decreasing and their traditional use of the landscape was spread out and you know, they would use pit latrines and things on a small scale that, that still balanced with the ecosystem around them. But as that jungle got cut further and further and they got more concentrated, so did their, so did their, you know, their humanure, and you know, dogs were getting in there. So there was a lot more parasites and funky bacteria cycling because of the change in the environment. But this young man was out looking for help, and he was, he was, he was like something otherworldly. I remember walking down the street. He looked. His face was like the carved statues on on the old temples, the stelae. I mean, it was perfectly sloped back forehead, the nose, the jaw. And, his hair was cut like this, six straight bags of long black hair, and he just wore like a white tunic, barefoot in the city. I was like, wow, I think I followed him for quite a few blocks until he probably stopped and turned around like, what, why are you following me? Um, he knew a little bit of Spanish, and he did a lot of gesticulating, and you know, there's a lot of ways to talk when you don't know a language. You figure it out. And basically, I learned what was going on. And I said, well, you know, maybe I have an idea. Thinking of compost toilet. I'm thinking, you know, how do we just contain the humanure? Using it as a second byproduct is great, but hey, let's just contain it. You know, let's stop this this parasitic cycle. So I'm like, you know, can I come back with you? And you know, it was a tough decision, and I didn't know what I was getting into either. I don't know. If I would have asked again, but um, basically, he said yes, and we hiked back through an old dry riverbed, like four days into the jungle. I went in a hard jungle where white men really don't belong in many ways, <laughs> uh, even just genetically. So put myself in the heart of this jungle and met with some of the elders of the community to share this idea. And half were like, no, you know, the reason we exist is because no one's come in. And the other half were like, you know, with children and you know, the younger men and they were like, look, we have a problem here. What he's suggesting is not that radical. How about we work together and we build one of these in like kind of a communal space. So that began really the journey of a lifetime for me, because as I lived in this community, at that time I was not aware of whole system design. I had not been studying deep ecology. I'd never heard of permaculture. You know, I'd been living and learning skills in rural Latin America, but never, you know, really kind of conceptualized uh, the dynamics that they were living, which is probably a good thing. Because, you know, they had an open mind just to experience what was happening. And what looked like just wild jungle everywhere, after living there for a time period, realized that it was intimately managed. All of it was providing everything they needed. I got goosebumps thinking about it. Um, so they were harvesting all their medicines, all their foods, all their fibers, you know, fodder for the few animals they had, um, their techniques of, of managing and, and fallowing and, and harvesting all balanced with their needs and was able to use the same land generation after generation after generation. So it was regenerative. I didn't know that term at the time, but I was looking at it. I was experiencing it. And it fascinated me. It blew, blew my mind away. At the same time, I was out there working with these systems to build our toilets. So we ended up building our toilet with like adobe, uh, bamboo, thatch. You know, we kind of just crafted this compost toilet out of the jungle. It's gorgeous. I wanted to like live there when I'm done. <laughs> and that also sparked in me natural building. So 
something I'd not really participated in before. I was always building skate ramps and stuff, you know, concrete, you know, from construction sites as a kid, but this was totally different. And subsequently, I got very sick. I got very sick. Uh, you know, all the things I'd gone in there to try and, you know, help, help balance, I got riddled with. Amoeba, salmonella, typhoid, all of it. And it used to be the skinny. Uh, but it was a trade-off because that changed my life as well. So I pretty much got carried out of the jungle, uh, and I came back to the states to try and recuperate. You know, I was given this and that pill, and you know, I went to the doctors in the hospital. And, you know, no one could say anything. No, you're fine. Quit worrying about it. You know, you take these pills. Um, so that changed. The first time in my life, I wasn't well. So that was all mixing into my journey. And during this time period, I was. I was looking out for a natural building. I was like, all right, we're going to go out west. I'm going to go out to Colorado, New Mexico, where you know, I've heard of this, you know, this straw bale and stuff. And as I piled into my little VW bug and had everything in there I owned, um, I heard about a, uh, a project in North Carolina. This was, so I was like, well, that's, I think i go there before I go out. And it was, uh, what I'd heard about was a circular 13-sided Mayan design. Um, 13-sided straw bale community center being built at a permaculture community outside of Asheville called Earth Haven. Right? I was like, all right, cool, I want to go check it out. Still didn't, still didn't know anything about permaculture, but I was like, I was going for the natural building. And I show up there, and it's this awesome scene, and I'm instantly stacking straw bales, and I'm hanging out with all these interesting people, and I didn't know it, but I landed myself in, in the center of uh, what, what was the first intentionally sort of large-scale designed permaculture community in the United States. And it was in its infancy, in its genesis, and all this awesome energy of all these great uh, teachers and leaders there. Uh, Peter Bain, who started and still edits the permaculture activist, was one of the, the founding members there. Patricia Allison, uh, an amazing crone, an amazing wise woman. She's still there, I believe. Uh, Chuck Marsh. One of my favorite Appalachian permaculture mountain men, right? and runs a great nursery called Useful Plants. He's got really cool um, edible landscape. So he runs that small nursery out of Earth Haven now, which is near Asheville behind Black Mountain. So anyway, this was like 320-some acres of landscape that was being designed. And basically, it's, it's the Black Book. We call the, the Black Book the, you know, Bill Mollison's Permaculture Manual, the big thick book. It was like it, alive, you know? So you'd, you'd be turning around, they'd be, they'd be tapping the stream for microhydro, and they were building this, this beautiful, you know, community structure out of natural building. They were, they were creating forestry cooperatives to use the wood to build, to start an income, to start that space for, you know, market gardening, you know? So they had started their own income, you know, exchange, you know? They were bringing it to life, so it was really exciting. Without really knowing what permaculture was, I'd come from living with this indigenous culture, and I came in back into this culture, where I was from, and to me it was the translation. It was like, okay, well here's, here's that knowledge being adapted to our modern reality. Our economies, our social networks, our resources. So I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is my culture, this is my subculture, this is my community here. So I was really excited to find that above everything. The skill building and all that was great, but we had a lot of fun. Earth Haven had a really, had a really nice balance um, 
of spiritualism, earth-based spiritualism. So we were doing sweat lodges. We were having big fires, you know, drinking moonshine, you know, just having fun. It was like this, it, above all, it was kind of just this gathering. And to me, that, that was probably what drew me most into permaculture, right? Then all the skills and all that was just a bonus. So that's when I first sort of discovered and began working with permaculture. From there, I did a stint in southeast Spain for an arid lands research community. There's a desert in the southeast part of Spain, old Moorish irrigated terraces. So I was the gardener for these old, like, thousand-year-old irrigated terraces, like in this oasis in the desert, which was amazing. Powerful place, and the desert draws some unique characters. Wow. And all this time, Nicaragua was still in my mind. The land, the people, you know, the, the need, the struggle. And I had been building skills that I thought, okay, maybe now I can come back and, and you know, work on starting something that I have not come across. At that point, I'd been happy to have joined into another project if it was holding true and, and really working culturally appropriate grassroots and focusing on you know, real sort of long-term food security, perennial food systems, et cetera, et cetera. And at the time, I couldn't really find one. I was like, all right, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to, you know, create this. And I went back to Nicaragua. This was 16 years ago. And I, I bought land on Ometepe Island, which is an inland island within Lake Nicaragua. Beautiful, twin volcanic island. Um, huge, 12 miles point to point. 35 plus thousand people on it, yet very rural. And it was kind of a land before time, out of time, because of its isolation from the mainland. Uh, so it was like going back two, three hundred years, where everyone was relying on everyone. They were relying on their animals. They were relying on the rainfall, what they could grow. Uh, so it was a fascinating experience and place. So armed with pretty much just a machete and a bunch of ideas, which I had to sort of play out and learn the realities of, uh, I started Project Bonafide with the focus and the vision of diversifying what had originally been a very diverse food, you know, multi-storied food system, very much like the Mayans. But within a couple generations of cash cropping, annual cropping, corns, beans, rice, since the 1950s, pretty much when food became a commodity on the market, that's when our landscapes across the world began to change dramatically. We started buying and selling food on the mass market. To me, that was, that was a huge turning point and, and, and a big disaster that's playing itself out all over the world. And you see it very obviously in a place like rural Nicaragua, where they had traditions, they had you know the hunting and the forest and the medicine and the, and the knowledge. But within two generations, that's pretty much all gone. Now it's slash and burn, it's dry land rice, beans, um, plantains, if the soil's rich enough, cotton, and it's slash and burn, and, and pretty much that's all that they do now. And there's not the knowledge of the diversity anymore, and how that's playing out is as these annual crops are failing, as weather patterns keep changing, becoming less consistent, their annual crops are failing. Right? They don't have a backup, that's all they're growing on, subsistence, farmers. So, people are going hungry, whereas they're in the tropics, they're on fertile soil. You know, and I was looking at this and I was like, this is, this is, this is, this is 
doesn't need to be. Um, how do we sort of bring back some of that diversity, that food security, in a way that's realistic? So not just, you know, standing up on a soapbox and saying, hey, you know, this would be great, plant more trees, you know, it's going to have all these benefits. Had to realize that, you know, this needs to make economic sense right away. If they don't have any margin for error to change the way they do things, it's asking them to change and risk, you know, hunger, dying, basically. So all these things, you know, had to be woven in to designing a project and creating something that would hopefully, you know, be of use. And so I started working and living with the community. Creating the relationships was the most important thing I've done there. I lived rough. I lived rougher than him, which helped a lot. I worked hard with them. I got to know what they were interested in and where they were ready to begin. Instead of coming in with a bunch of ideas and thinking this was a great idea, and it could have been a great idea, but it may not have been appropriate, and they may not have been ready for it. So we started working with just kind of bordering their rice fields with perennials. You know, let's get mangoes in there, let's get avocados, let's observe what's growing well, and then let's work with that. And let's diversify that. Let's start bringing in different varieties of mangoes throughout Central America, Hawaii, Florida, Southeast Asia that will begin to produce at different months of the year instead of just the one month where their sort of, you know, naturalized mango would produce. So working with what was there, what existed, what was doing well. I mean, that's kind of, you know, what Joel was talking about, you know, observe what is the energy, the flow that's there, work with that. So we began diversifying that. And so as those annual crops would fail, number one, there would be food at hand, right? But then, on top of that, you had a niche crop. You had, a, you had something to market. Nobody else was producing mangoes, you know, in April or in August. And all of a sudden, you were. So you created an economy. So you're starting to make money off this without very much or hardly any risk. Then as you make that economy, then you have money to make your own decisions. Then you have autonomy. And then, hopefully, it builds on itself where it's like, hey, we're making money off this. Let's do a little bit more and a little bit more until you get all the economic and ecological benefits of a good design culturally appropriate. It's all these weavings. And I think, you know, looking at the pattern behind design is paying attention to the cultural vein. Where are people? What are they interested in? What step are they ready to take? I think that's the pattern as well that often doesn't get seen. You come up with the best drawn design and implement it, and it could be all groovy, but if there's not a social situation to support it, it it'll it'll pass, it'll fade or fail. I've seen and I've done that too. So that social network is almost the first critical step in any permaculture design work that sometimes doesn't get talked about enough or understood. Coming forward, that was um, 16 years ago I started that project. Um, after about five or six years of it really getting started, I began to design myself out of it, which was a big life learning lesson to let go of things um, in, a, in a way that would still thrive. And I began to design myself out of that, and I began coming back to the States. It was actually flashing between rural Nicaragua and New York City, where I met Claudia, because it was fascinating. It was like I was living two lives in one. You know, I was like living two, three hundred years in the past, and then all of a sudden I was living in New York City, you know, it was the cutting edge of, of what humanity's doing. So I was fascinated with that for three or four years. Enough of this. Um, and I started spending time up in the Catskills at the Shivananda uh, Yoga Ranch, which 
It's a really cool, beautiful spot. And they pretty much gave me a bunch of money and said, you know, start doing some food for us and start doing this. And so I, I got to sort of leap into, uh, back into temperate, you know, uh, permaculture, education, food forest systems and stuff. Um, which is very different in some ways than the tropics. I mean, the tropics and the species list is like this, right? The temperate is like this. Um, but still, both are very dynamic. And so I came back and I started that for a few years, and then I was drawn back to living in this part of the world, seeing the energy, seeing the spark here, seeing the genesis of, of a movement. I was drawn to that. Uh, and I moved back, this is my sixth year back, living back in Frederick, Maryland. We have family land that's about 25 acres. Beautiful, right at the entrance to the watershed, uh, mostly wooded. Um, but with all the, all the areas that are open, we're filling with food forests and, um, and all kinds of different growing systems, starting to integrate some animal systems. We're building a circular straw bale home using our own wood. We did a round wood uh, timber frame. We have living roof. We're doing our own lime plasters, earthen plasters, living floors. Like we're doing it beautifully. It's taken us four years and a lot of money, but really part of the intent of it is to make this attractive so that, you know, most of the people, suburbanites, that are looking to build houses will be inspired and be like, wow, wow, I didn't know it could be this, this beautiful. And maybe we should think about this. And, you know, so trying to sort of, again, work with culture, right? Where are people here? Where's, you know, what, where's the suburban interest? You know, where are they ready to take a step to? And let's start there. Instead of being like totally radical permaculture over here. That's like, you know... Maybe they want a sexy herb spiral in their front yard, <laughs> you know, which is cool. I mean, it's art too, and I love art, so it's like, you know, how do I start melding these things together? So as I landed myself back in this mid-Atlantic suburban culture and creating a life again, I'm like, okay, well, first, you know, what's the struggle? What are the needs here? You know, looking at, you know, the suburban lawns and runoff in the yards and, and the disconnect of people not growing their own food, maybe the biggest one. So not having that experience. And I was like, okay, well, how do I begin to sort of take a lot of what I've learned and apply it culturally? And that's where I started kind of using the term edible landscaping more because I feel like that defines itself in people's heads a little better. Maybe they have a, a slight concept of it. And sort of using that approach and integrating permaculture, you know, sort of, you know, almost as a... Uh, as a background or something that gets experienced rather than elaborated on up front. And again, these aren't you know folks who have sort of dedicated their path to permaculture, but are interested in interacting with it and the benefits of it. And so I started doing a lot of hands-on workshops. You know, I do a workshop on building herb spirals, you know, creating swales on contour, how to start a food forest patch, and how to start a small little you know, diversified, you know, orchard system. And kind of almost making little projects out of it all to get people interested, right? And I started a business too that helped people jumpstart getting these things going on their lawns. Uh, and a lot of people, most of the clients were like, yeah, I just, I want a garden for myself and my kids to interact with. And yes, the idea of doing a bed on contour and harvesting all its own water sounds good, sounds smart. So, you know, I didn't necessarily push it much further than that. You know, we'll start like that. And then, you know, hey, how about, you know, a fruit tree or two over here? 
and then, but you know, let's do it this way. Let's create a large mulch area for it, and let's put a few companions in for it. Never selling it too large at once, and sort of bite size, so that people could begin comfortably interact with it, get success, having started, and then begin to do more and more and more. And I mean, that's just one approach. That's just my translation of using permaculture. But I think it's. I think it's kind of a missing element in the permaculture movement, which is why I'm focusing on it as well. Permaculture is a large concept, it's a lifelong learning. I learned lots of the Joel this morning. It's, it's, it's endless, which is what's awesome about it, right? It's like an ecosystem, it's just an endless uh, array of relationships, which is what's exciting about it. But that can be really overwhelming if you're just trying to get some skills and interact and grow some stuff, right? And when you take a permaculture design course, you know, you're getting a ton of information, which can be very inspiring, but then it can also leave you overwhelmed with, like, where just to begin, right? And then a lot of times you might think, well, I've really got to have this elaborate drawings, and, you know, I've got to have all these things in place before I even do one thing. And if that's the way your mind thinks, there's definitely benefits to it. If it doesn't, you know, just getting started, I think, is one of the most important things to do. And that's what I'm trying to share. It's like, hey, let's just do, you know, let's take one concept. Let's take a food forest, and even then, let's bring it down to like a single 10 foot by 10 foot patch, right? Let's just start there. With success, we can do another 10 foot patch, another 10 foot patch, and over time, this thing, you set the stage, it actually becomes this dynamic ecosystem food forest, you know, dynamic, which you can read about in a couple of big fat volumes. Uh, or you could just kind of set the stage and let it happen and learn from it and watch it. It's magic. It's, it's exciting. It's not overwhelming, but it's just getting it started. So that's kind of the niche that, I've, that I'm working with. I like to focus on um, real hands-on so people get you know, that muscle memory in doing things, having fun building earthen ovens, you know, working with natural plastics. I think it's really easy, fun, and it guides you to do it. Um, you, know, you don't necessarily have to understand how to build a full natural building to build an earthen oven or you know build a small structure a small shed so again just kind of just trying to keep it trying to keep it simple and then let it let it grow naturally from there it's kind of kind of where I'm at you know and and, and, and the way that I'm learning too because the systems are almost unimaginable I mean you you really I don't I mean potentially your mind could grasp it all but most of our minds aren't that open. Um, so instead of trying to maybe try to understand it all before you begin, just kind of jumping in and starting. And then just with time and your whole life, the rest of your life, it's exciting. It'll, just, it'll teach you and guide you. You just kind of jump in and start with. So. And the book that I wrote was just kind of, um, it came out of all the hands-on workshops I was doing. People would come up afterwards and they'd be like, do you have some kind of follow-up to this? Do you, you know, do you know where I could find this information? I was like, well, I don't know. Um, and you know, there's bits of this information spread around a lot of good books, but you know, they're kind of big books. There's a lot of philosophy and stuff. And I'm like, all right. So you know, my first, I didn't really intend to write a book. I was like, all right, I'm just going to kind of do these follow-ups to all my workshops, and ended up, you know, creating a very elaborate book that's based on all projects that we've done. I've broken down like eight different subjects, landscape-oriented subjects, you know, building earth spirals, swales, starting a food forest, growing mushrooms outdoors, building an earthen oven, 
some of my favorite uncommon fruits um, and compiled it so that, you know, even, even if you've never heard of permaculture, you pick it up, you can plug in, and then you can start that journey at the beginning, where you might be ready, where a suburbanite might be ready, he's never grown in, you know, he's never taken a course, but is ready for that. So that's, that's what I've created there, uh, is that as a, as a resource to hopefully get people just to kind of jump in. Amongst all that, we've been building our house, starting, you know, uh, creating cultural events. We're having our first Paul Paul Festival um, in September in our place. So I highly recommend coming because um, it won't just be about Paul Pauls, it'll be fall. So it'll be going through our food forests and our gardens and just seeing all the different things that are happening. It'll be a lot of fun. Paul Paul is just kind of the headliner. Uh, what we had to It's uh, I think it's 17th or 18th. What's that poster say there behind you, bud? 17th. September 17th. Yep. Yep. September 17th. Yep. Um, we're going a lot of different Paul Pauls. This is Paul Paul country. So like what I was observing in Nicaragua with mangoes. When I observed what's doing well and strong and actually increasing around here are pawpaws. Pawpaws are on the rise, not just culturally, but within our forest systems are beginning to show up more and more. So this is definitely, this is like pawpaw time. <laughs> and they grow so well. It's like with the fungi and the mushrooms in our area. Where can we get some of those? Some pawpaws? Yeah, where can we buy pawpaws? <laughs> I have some pawpaw trees with me, yes. I, I brought some... Select seedling pawpaws. And can we get your book there too? Yeah, hey, you can get my book. There too. <laughs> <laughs> can you get it signed? <laughs> yes, I'll even sign it. Um, and I've got some. I've got a. I've got a heat coat comfrey. This is a really cool running comfrey. It's about mm, 20 inches or so, and it's a nice colonizer for an area. It's a good chop and drop. It's a good mulch builder, soil builder, pollinator. It's a great permaculture plant. I brought some of those today. Some Egyptian onion, Nanking cherry, a bush cherry. Do you want to say something about that? Uh, you're just going. Just yeah. happy you're saying all these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm happy to talk about um, the different plants and uncommon fruits that I've been working with, that I've had success with or not success with. Our food forests are really um, coming into some maturity, so we're really starting to get a lot of feedback. What's worked well. Um, so the little bit I've learned is definitely could be helpful if you're thinking of, oh, what should I try, what would work well, um, what's kind of a, a, an easy start. Um, I'm always happy to talk about those. So please ask questions about that or talk to me later about it. Or come see our Paw Paw Fest, come see what's doing well, what's producing well with, with little input, uh, with neglect. You know, I always design for neglect, especially with my busy life. And, and see what occurs abundantly with little input for maximum output. That's really you know, the focus. I think that's realistic for always, but very much in our busy modern life. You know, when I go to a consult for somebody, one of the first things is like, how much time do you have? And it's like, all right, let's work with that. And let's, let's design so that even if that's, that doesn't happen, your system will self-regulate and thrive pretty much on neglect. I think that's just a good good consideration. Um, so that's a lot of the way our systems have evolved. So we've learned a lot of what's doing well, what works well, what fruit's heavy, you know, when fruit's heavy. Yeah. I can talk about fruits. I don't think I have enough time for that. 
Um, but I'll stop talking and ask if there's any inquiries. And I'm open to sharing information about how I started a business, how much do I charge, anything that would help anybody, you know, learn how to move into any of the aspects of what I do. Nuts. What are you growing? Filberts? Hazelnuts? You are. Yeah. The University of Oregon has, has done probably the most extensive research on hazelnuts and filberts. And really the trick with that is getting the, the, the filbert blight resistant right. ones, um, but then also getting the pollination right. You know, they're quite specific about their pollinators. Rain Tree Nursery, which is one of my favorite nurseries, even though they're on the West Coast, um, they do a good selection and description of, and most of them are University of Oregon uh, hazelnut varieties, and they'll tell you, okay, well you definitely want to have these two together, or you know, add this one, this one for getting that good cross-pollination and you want good varieties that will fill the nuts out. Sometimes if you just get random filberts for nuts, they, they might get blighted, they might have a lot of blanks in them, and that might also be because you don't have the right pollinators with them. But anyway, apart from that, they're very easy to grow. They're very, they're very productive. If you have the opportunity to plant them away from squirrels, that is a positive, or put them within a dog fence, or you know an area like ours inside our dog fence area. Deer would probably graze them, but um, you know, the, deer, the, the squirrels aren't going to come in there. They grow fast and well. What would you do with waterlogged clay that has pH around that of tomato soup? I'd probably build up. Okay. Um, I would go raised up from it. Um, you know, do eagle beds. You know, get, just get a bunch of just different whatever organic matter you have access to. So I would go up from that. I plant elderberries. Elderberries, you know, will will take very very wet feet. Play. They're tough. They're super productive. Very medicinal. Great wine. Mulberries too. Was that mulberries? Yeah. And mulberries. You can also dig down to make ponds, mm -hmm. so the water will fill that and use that to build up, as he's saying. So you get the drainage mounds and the concentrated water you can do something with, as long as it's not a mosquito swarm. Yeah, mulberries, black walnuts. If you put if you put stuff. enough organic matter on that soil, it will return from clay into humus from all of the earthworms and stuff. Over time, you're right. It'll transition. I mean, most most of our areas had like you know 10, 20, 30 feet of good black topsoil, and it's been run away from agriculture and killing all sorts of bad, nasty stuff. So it's not hard to build humus in southwestern PA or. West Virginia or Ohio or any place like that. Yeah, it'll regenerate given, given the opportunity. So you talked about like a festival in this September and so forth. On your book you've got two websites. What's the best best way to find you? Ah, thank you. Um, our website is ecologiadesign.com. Uh, ecologia is a Portuguese word for ecology. And our website's got a lot of my book on it. You know, I've just put as much information on there for different design, you know, ideas and information. A lot of pictures. I'm big on just kind of keeping it simple and straight. Um, yes, and the poster for that is on there. Um, if you all leave your email, um, I'll send out that poster here, you know, sometime soon as a safe date. And on and off, we do other cultural events. I'm probably going to start doing a uh, like a spring berry you pick festival because we're just going to have so much, so many berries and so many different types of things going off. I'm going to need people to come help pick it. <laughs> so, and, and I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm looking how to combine, um, you know, culture, ecology, and economy, you know, in my life, you know, and, and I think doing those three is, is all very realistic. 
cannot leave out the economy of it. You know, you've got to make money at this. That's the reality. Uh, you know, I learned even in rural Nicaragua, you know, and, and here in wealthy suburban areas, it's still the same reality. And it's what will actually help it propagate as well. Yeah. In, in the suburbia, I've noticed that there's a lot of transients. And when we work with clients, um, do you find that when they plant their apple, their little orchard, do they want to stay there? I mean, I think moving all the time really is not healthy for, yeah. it, it's just, it doesn't connect people. So I, I get that a lot. People are like, oh, you say, how, they're like, how long is it going to take to harvest? Mm -hmm. You can already see they're thinking maybe I'm not sticking around. And what I say to them, I was like, well, if you move to your next place, how awesome would it be if, if there were some berries there and a fruit tree? Mm -hmm. Well, I hadn't thought of that. You know, kind of doing it not just for yourself, thinking about, okay, this would be a wonderful thing to arrive to. Um, so I think in that regards, you know, people are transient looking. You know, I'll think, we'll grow some currants, grow some gummies, you know, grow some of those quick, you know, berries as well um, to get, you know, it's something for you, but then it's nice to think about leaving something for those who follow as well. Yeah, I don't that if you don't mind real quick. We just sold our house last fall, and in the spring we were talking about putting in this big garden, and she was kind of like, well, we're going to sell the house, why bother? And, and I, I made sure that we talked to our, our agents, and I said, listen, you need to sell this house as it comes with food. Because right? everything was in harvest. <laughs> yeah. right? This apple tree and all that stuff was like, None of the other houses in the block come with food. It does raise the value of it. But then it also, you shouldn't forego a year of experience. Even if you left, you built this awesome food forest system and hugel beds and swales, etc. You know, drilled a bunch of mushroom logs. That experience, you know, it just takes a long time to build experience, especially in a temperate zone. You go to the tropics, man, it's like, you screw up, you just stick it right back in the ground and it grows. It was great. <laughs> That's how I sped up my learning curve. Uh, but temperate, you know, I'll wait until next year and try that again. So don't wait. Always start. Don't think that, oh, I, I won't be here for that. Because the experience is really the most valuable thing that you'll take to your next spot. And then hopefully keep improving it. There's a previous story. So I was managing these greenhouses in the mid-80s, and I decided just to experiment, and I planted antique apples in there. I was just running there, you know. So we moved, started our business, started our family. The greenhouses went through several iterations, got abandoned, got torn down. Suburbia came. I drive by last year, and I see my beautiful apples are still there, all over the ground. So I knock on the door, and the lady was really happy. She said, oh, I didn't know what to do with them. I felt so bad. I said, they're antique, organic, local apples that people would pay a fortune for. So if I could pick some, I'll bring you some applesauce. So I brought her applesauce, collected more, made dried apples. Then, because she was so happy with me, one had died. So I cut down this apple tree. Now we have apple wood for my top oven. Nice. And apples and a friend. Because I wasn't owning anything then. I just said, oh, let's try things. So it's really great. You never know what surprises yeah. come. And the cyan wood, you can go back and, you know, now you can observe what's done well overall and with neglect. Well, if Grafted. I was smart enough to have remembered what was what. <laughs> Dale's Delight. Dale's Delight. How's that? Uh, right. <laughs> but anyway, just, you know, just plant things and you never know what good will come. Right, right, right. That's cool. Things. Well, thank you guys. I would throw out there that I've brought some different jams of pawpaw and spice bush, of just pawpaw, aronia, things for people just to try the flavors of, maybe some of these things that you've not had before. Um, and I think after 
last talk, I brought a, I brought a bunch of uh, infused like vodkas. I got black currant, Juneberry. I brought one of our meads. I got I a cocktail shaker, man. <laughs> so cocktail hours over there, and we'll have a lot of unique flavors, very tasty. Because I mean, you get a lot of fruit. You're like, what do I do with all this? Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it a lot, preserves it, barters well. It, get, it barters well, it goes up in value, it gets better sometimes every year, so it's got a practical side, it's not just debauchery. <laughs> I think this is the choir, man. <laughs> the choir. Well, thank you all, thanks, thanks. Thank And that was Michael Judd, author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. You can pick up his book from Chelsea Green. And if you'd like to find out more about him and his work, as he said, you can read a lot of the material that's in that book on his website, ecologiadesign.com. What I like about Michael is that he meets people where they're at. Like really, truly goes out there and finds out what it is someone else needs and then adapts what it is that he's doing to them. That herb spiral in the front yard, putting together this idea of a patch for a food forest. All of those are different ways that make permaculture accessible. It's, it's easy sometimes, and I know that I'm more than capable of doing this, to become a bit cynical about some of these common techniques that we see over and over again or their misapplication. Again, swales are something that continue to make my brain just go, oh, why? Why do we keep doing this? But I get it. It's nice to see something from your work. To be able to walk out there and go, this is mine. This is something that was created that is functional in some way. To build up, to plant above the problem, or to dig in and make it our solution, such as that heavy clay land. This work of permaculture requires, as Michael said, those social systems, those structures to keep things going and growing. And as much as I've railed against some things over time, I'm beginning to see more and more of the wisdom of implementing something, of trying something, of getting out there and doing it. Not necessarily in an unexamined way, where it's just like, I'm going to plant a tree right here, right now, just because it's a tree and I want to. But more to say that if I don't get my hands dirty, if I don't plant a tree or sow some seeds or learn about natural building or creating social systems, that the work will never get done. Bill Mollison talks about this in the designer's manual, about this academic's fallacy of I think, therefore I act. Or maybe it's I think, therefore I've acted. And I wonder how we can each squeeze a little bit more permaculture into what it is that we're doing to try to make mistakes, to get dirty, to have a problem in a temperate climate where you can't just plant another one immediately and expect it to be successful, where it takes time for us to grow and to build, while at the same time using that as a way to get to know our neighbors, to show them that this is successful, that they can grow food with it, even if we're not looking at making a business out of our permaculture practices, 
but really making them successful in something that others want to be a part of and to see. Michael's given us all of that in his book. Many, many ways to engage our neighbors and to get others involved using techniques while steeping them deeply in permaculture. So if this is your first time ever hearing Michael and you'd like to learn more, definitely check out his website and pick up a copy of his book. It really is worth your time and may be one of the best introductions to these ideas for somebody just coming in. Or if you want to give something as a gift for somebody because they keep asking you, hey, I hear this permaculture thing, what is it? So check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. And if along the way there are any other resources that I can connect you with, feel free to get in touch. 717-827-6266. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or send me a letter. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Also, I'm running my summer to fall fundraiser now through September 30th, 2016. So you can send something to that email address or by using the paypal.me link in the show notes or send something by post. Really, I love any letter. So feel free if you're ready to put a stamp on a postcard or on an envelope. I'd love to read your thoughts written by your own hand. From here, Another episode with David Bilbury, as he's recorded a number of guest episodes for the show. And then after that, I'll be returning with another interview of my own. So until then, spend each day doing what it is that you love, that takes care of Earth, yourself, and each other. 